Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Andrew Heaton on the line. Andrew, how are you? I am living the dream. How are you, Michael? That's the best way to live. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I, I love your bio and especially, you know, with the, the political commentary and everything else that you do. So why don't you share a little bit about you and we'll dive into this conversation. Sounds great. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm a political satirist, a comedian, and a policy analyst. Uh, what that basically means is I'm, I'm very funny, but I'm not quite funny enough to be funny full time. Uh, and so I end up uh, doing comedy, but I also do a show called The Political Orphanage, which is my main gig, where I uh, talk about concepts, interview authors, and uh, just review policies and if they work or not, um, defer an audience that is tired of red team versus blue team slap fights. I'm, I'm an independent. I've got lots of friends, lovers, and enemies that are Republicans and Democrats, and so have tried to create a space for people that, that want to do something other than just be on that teeter-totter for their entire life. That's a great way to be because, yeah, it gets tiring and doesn't matter what what color you are as far as uh, your political flags are concerned, it, it, it's getting tiring if it isn't already. And it, the fact that you're a political, you know, and a policy analyst probably gives you a ton of material for your comedy routines because there are some policies where it's definitely a head scratcher and go okay where were they going with this i'm sure you have tons of stories on that yeah it, it actually does benefit me because i i think that um being fairly reductive uh, a lot of people think the government is evil or good i tend to think it's kind of funny like I, I kind of tend to look at it and go, ah, this is amusing that they're they're trying this thing, which is a, a kind of a sideways look at it, and it also helps because I I end up doing a lot of stand up gigs for um, think tanks and student groups, and so they they kind of want me to do niche stuff, and I'll go, all right, I'm going to come in and talk about like, I don't know, occupational licensing. Why do uh, why do funeral directors need to be licensed if if they screw up? Do the corpses come back to life? Like, what's the problem here? Which is probably not something I do in a comedy club, <laughs> just because it's it's a little too wonky, but works pretty well for a, a think tank in Washington D.C. Well, depending on the club, that might be funny. I, I was giggling after it, and Thank I, you. Um, a friend of mine um, years and years ago, his brother uh, worked a summer gig at a funeral home, and we went in there on a Sunday. And of course, not typically busy unless it's got, you know, visitation or whatnot. So they were, they gave me a little bit of a tour of behind the scenes of a funeral home, which was definitely eye opening. And, you know, yes, there was, uh, you know, they did allow us to, you know, see the procedure room and, you know, they were, mm. um, working on, a cadaver, which was an interesting uh, experience to watch. Um, and then, you know, and I'm not going to mention the funeral home or anything like that, but we walk around this corner and then literally in this hallway was an open casket with, you know, a deceased body in there. And I'm like, do you guys just usually shove them off in the corner somewhere? And they're like, are they going to complain? <laughs> Who's going to tell, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, I, I deserve a room. It's like they're going in the room, but we're waiting for the other the other situation or the other 
visitation to wrap up so we can you know move inventory along and it was just kind of like this you know supply chain kind of thing that was moving things around it was it was such a surreal experience like okay i'm never going to be able to enter a funeral home again without thinking of these things so mm-hmm. uh going back to what you said you know it's, it's making light of some things and and the fact that you know obviously the work that you do um can bring you know light to you know, situations that are a bit challenging. And that's what you know, we face in this world right now is there's all there's always challenges going on in life. But, you know, right now, it definitely seems to be a little bit more amplified with all the things that are going on in the world. And with politically correct and all the other kind of stuff, sometimes there's certain subjects that are, mm, I don't want to go there. But, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes in comedy clubs, you know, people... It, and not to say it's morbid, but people do need to laugh about some things. So, oh, one hundred percent. No, life's real difficult. Mm-hmm. We've have we've, we have an abundance of religious scholars that have have said this uh, this effect. Very few of them think life's super easy. No, life's real difficult. We all got to watch out for each other. We all got to help each other. And uh, humor is a great salve for that. Um, humor is a, a great coping mechanism for the slings and arrows of life. It's fun when you're already in a good mood. And I think that it's great in terms of politics and public policy because. Humor is surprisingly adept at being able to get someone to consider a different viewpoint temporarily in a way that doesn't tend to work when you're arguing with somebody. If if you and I start getting into arguments about tariffs or something like that, um, we're we're apt to kind of erect our defenses. But if you're making actual good jokes about concepts, people they'll they'll play with you for thirty seconds uh, while you're doing that. And on my end, I'm not really interested in, in like making an army of clones that think what I think and have my opinion. What, what I really want to do is help people just be a smarter version of what they already are. Uh, people that disagree with me, there are things that I'm going to be able to bring to their attention that's going to make a better version of them. And I hope they do the same with me. And humor is a great uh, lubricant for that. Yeah. When I work with people, I always approach it with, if I have a different opinion on a matter, I still want to seek to understand why that person has that position on tariffs or mm-hmm. a, a political movement or a policy or things like that. Ask why from a from a curiosity standpoint, not from an accusational standpoint. Because I, I I might be I don't want to say swayed, but I may change my mind and. That's actually a good, healthy thing for people to do from time to time is once you get more information on things, you may make a different decision on a matter. But I think that's the key thing. And unfortunately, what I see in society right now is it's that first exposure, you know, first Mm -hmm. impression kind of thing. And no one wants to ask questions. Okay, why did the president say that? Or why did a former president say this? You know, what's their motivation? Okay, politically speaking, we kind of know what motivations are, but there's something deeper to that. Why why do they feel that? You know, why why is that important to them? And I think it goes back to you know when people are researching for elections and at the time of this recording, you know, midterms are coming up. People should be ignoring the noise, the bickering back and forth between candidates and say, okay, what is this candidate's position on the things that matter to me most? And, and figure those things out and, and then make a determination 
Um, or as some people say, okay, I'm going to flip a coin, a good friend of mine, another friend, he, he does that in, in the polling booth from time to time. He'll literally flip a coin, let it land. Now he doesn't do that, but he gets everybody laughing at it because he's <laughs> like, Tails. Oh, I'm definitely going to do that next time. Like I already know who I'm going to vote for by the time I get there, but I'm definitely going to flip the coin just to make flip, people feel like, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a funny move. I'm stealing that. Yeah, by all means, flip the coin, make sure it lands on the desk or wherever the, the booth thing is so it makes a loud noise. And <laughs> you can say say heads or tails. You're like, heads. And, you know, it, it'll, it'll get everybody laughing in the moment because you know, I've noticed even you know, when I vote is, you know, there, there seems to be some tenseness mm. about it not because they were waiting in a long line but just the importance of it for them and I'm like mm, okay and you know if some people are on the fence they're not sure who to vote for i mean maybe the coin is a good option but you know statistics i don't know what the stats are i don't think they're 50 50 i guess it really depends on how you flip the coin but by all means yes and, I, and i'll tell joe that you did it so yeah. he'll, he'll be he'll be happy about that well, and I'm I'm glad that you're you're asking questions too. I think that's incredibly important. Um, I I think we've really lost sight of how we should be approaching politics and public policy, which is we we don't live in a country where half of our neighbors are enemies that pose an existential threat to us. We're not we're not living through the Rwandan genocides. We're we're living in a country that, by and large, is composed of very decent people that want good things for everybody in it, that don't like racism, don't like poverty, want to fix these things. That's where most Americans are. The overwhelming majority of it is. And what we're really having is a fight over the solutions to common problems. And, uh, you know, I, I'd say for there, there are a lot of politicians I really don't like very much at all. But for most of the, the people just on the ground floor, garden variety human beings like you and me, most people have pretty good intentions behind them. And I think that it's a, a healthier way of, of doing this is to judge the person by their intention, judge the policy by the outcome. If the policy is well intended, but it's got a bad outcome, let's not do that. That's, that's, I don't really care whether your heart was in the right place. If you've got a dumb policy, that's going to waste a lot of money, but I appreciate that your heart was in the right place in terms of whether or not I invite you to my birthday party. Uh, if you're, if you're picking a policy because you want to hurt people and you're filled with, uh, hatred and schadenfreude, that, that's one thing, but I, I find that's not most people. I find most people are, um, they're, they're trying to solve problems. Uh, and, uh, it's helpful for me to ask about them. Um, one, because I might be wrong. I've changed my name or my, not my name. I've changed my position a number of times, um, uh, because I've, I've evolved over time. Uh, I assume right now I'm probably wrong about a quarter of the stuff. I believe maybe a third of the stuff, but I just don't know which bit. So I have to talk to people about it. They have to let me know when I'm wrong. And, uh, and, and that it'll create that little cognitive dissonance and I'll kind of noodle it for a while. Maybe I'll revise my position. Alternately, if I know what I'm talking about and they don't know what they're talking about, it might be a situation where I have an opportunity to go, Oh, I think you're saying this, but, but actually the, the way I understand the situation is this. And, and I might be able to kind of help remove a roadblock for them. So those questions are always useful. Importantly so. And. Again, having that dialogue makes such a big difference. I, I, I think back to when I went to college, I was in a business marketing class, and I don't remember the professor's name, and shame on me. I, I, if I still had old papers, I could figure it out. But anyway, one of the things that she said, because for some reason, we started talking about politics, because it was right around a U.S. presidential election. And of course, you know, classrooms filled with 18-year-olds and first-time voters and all of that. And, and she said, okay, this is kind of a, a framework that she follows. I said, it varies because of human element and all of that. But the Republican Party tends to be a party, and again, this was back in the 80s, tends to be more 
create environments and create policies for businesses to thrive, to grow things, to provide services and things like that. Her perspective was on the other side of the fence. The Democratic Party tends to like having government have a little bit more involvement in basically the same thing creating opportunities and policies and procedures to help people. It, it, it kind of boils down to, do you want businesses to do it? Do you want government to do it? Or you find a hybrid, which is what we've always found ourselves yeah. in, is this hybrid world. So we have, and I, and I say this a lot because I've got friends on both sides of the aisle as well. So we have a lot more in common than we think. It's just the noise makes us think that we are so polar opposite. It, this, is, this is not like the Chicago Bears and Green Bay Packers fans, people. This is different. This, we got a lot more in common. Um, I, I've got friends in both towns, too, and it's always comical. Although Bears fans are really upset about Aaron Rodgers continuing saying that he owns the Bears, which is kind of true, but it's another story for another day. But ultimately, it boils down to we have a lot more in common. Let's talk about those things. Move those initiatives together. Every time I hear bipartisan agreement on it, I'm like, wow, we, we stumbled on something. But there should, there should be a lot of that. And unfortunately, the noise and the bickering gets in the way of that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with you on all those points. I, I think ultimately, um, I, I think the goal should be we should be looking for the, the optimum balance of government and private sector. I myself tend to be much more of a private sector guy because um, it, it strikes me as more innovative, nimble, so on and so forth. All the boilerplate that you've heard in the past. Uh, however, there are situations where there are market failures or whether there are incentives that are not provided for uh, by the private sector. Vaccines are a great example of this, of a situation where if, if a pharmaceutical company makes a really, really good vaccine and it completely cures that disease a year later, they don't make any money off of it. So, so that's a situation where you're going to need government funding. And on, on my end, I would rather have I, I kind of envision a a streamlined but very competent government is what I want, and that requires being able to talk to people. Uh, and I also very much agree with you on that we've got more stuff in common. Um, I, I think the data is, in fact, very good on that. Uh, the polling is Americans, this sounds so weird, Americans aren't actually more ideologically polarized than we've been since 1950. We're about where we've always been. What has happened is that we've become much better sorted over the last 30 years. So today, if you were a conservative, you were almost certainly a Republican. If you were a progressive, you were almost certainly a Democrat. That's not been the case, though. Uh, I, I used to work for the United States Congress, and I worked for a conservative Democrat. I worked for a couple of them. Uh, there was one one straggling Rockefeller Republican. It was still up on the hill at that time because you used to have, you know, uh, a Nelson Rockefeller East Coast liberal Republicans. That used to be a thing. And so if you go back 30 years ago, your political party tended to not be a defining attribute of who you were as a person. Uh, I, I dated multiple women in college where their political party never came up, but their religion did. And now it's completely flipped where like I'll date people. I'll never know what religion they are, but their party will come up immediately. And what seems to have happened for, for a variety of reasons over the last 20, 30 years is that uh, conservatives have all migrated to the Republican Party. Progressives have all migrated to the Democratic Party. And simultaneously, about half the countries decided we hate both parties, which is where I'm at. 
Uh, so we've all become independents. And the result is that there's very little overlap, which means there's very little bipartisan initiatives in the House. And we also end up getting this false perspective of polarization because the our elected leaders and our media tend to be very well sorted and ideologically consistent and very much of the right or very much of the left. But the majority of Americans don't operate that way. Most Americans lean one way or the other, but have certain things that they're going to be a little uh, a little idiosyncratic about. You'll have, um, I think, a, a majority of Republicans think there should be some kind of gun control, and a majority of Democrats are in favor of the Second Amendment. But uh, you tend to have things like that look a lot more stark when, when they're projected at the national level. You could find lots of people throughout the country that are probably more socially conservative and traditional and religious, but they like welfare. And they like uh, various government programs. I mean, that's kind of your your traditional FDR labor Democrat was like that. Um, so there there are lots of those people, and and it's that's one of the things I'm working on is just kind of remind everybody that, that we're we're actually there's this exhausted majority of people in the country that can get along and can entertain other ideas, and we're we're kind of being sold a false bill of goods by a lot of people in politics and in media that make a buck off of getting us to fight each other. And and that's the key. It's I, I tell people all the time, the reason why a news station, doesn't matter which flavor you're watching, is saying things is they are paid by advertisers. Yeah. And if, if people want to change the direction, again, doesn't matter which flavor, then one approach would be, okay, start singling out those advertisers and say, look, we want you to focus on making your product or service and not advertising this type of uh, entertainment. There's other ways to to get branded and, and everything like that and start impacting. And we've seen that, especially in extreme situations where you know, an advertiser gets called out because they support a cause. doesn't matter what cause it is. And you know that that could be a whole other argument or conversation about organizations and causes and things like that because they're made up of of people and the people in that organization believe uh, that cause to be justifiable to the point of you know make, taking a public stand on it uh, and you know I, again I don't want businesses to be robotic but I also want them to you know not create a stir just for generating revenue there's better ways to approach it. Yeah, I don't think it's a good a good model. And I, I used to work in um, cable television as well. I was a writer on primetime TV on a on a talking head program for five years. And uh, I can tell you, as somebody working in in the pit on a on a five year um, a tour of of cable television, we never had a single evening where our host came on and went, "Yeah, nothing big happened today." I guess I watch something else. I would tune in tomorrow. We'll let you know. Like we couldn't do that. We because it was dependent upon advertising, which means it's dependent on eyeballs, which means that we had to constantly act as though this broadcast was vitally important to you. And we wanted to keep people there. I mean, the shows I worked on were good, but there was a very big incentive in place to go for things which were. Um, uh, very conflict oriented because that's entertaining and engaging uh, to to uh, prey upon people's us versus them mentality. That's very engaging. Um, anything that's just scary, uh, fear based, anything emotionally evocative, that does all of that. Uh, and 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 for that for that reason, yeah. If you're watching the news, that the news has to get you to watch it, and and it's going to 
overreport issues of conflict, and it's it's going to try and freak you out. Um, on the Political Orphanage, the show that I host, uh, I, I use a, a subscription model. I, I, I use Patreon, and, and basically, I just say at the beginning of every program, "Hey, uh, I do this for a living. I don't have any corporate sponsorship. If you like that, I'm doing this. You're glad I'm doing this. It would be great if you supported the show." And I, I make a full time doing that, and it's it's wonderful because the incentive structure for me is I get rewarded when I do a bunch of research. That's when people tend to throw money at me. Is when I put my head down and I really, really. Uh, work hard on something and then, and then broadcast it. Uh, and that's great. I don't, I don't want to be incentivized to, to, uh, do, uh, uh, bias confirmation for, for people's existing ideologies. And, uh, I, for, for people that watch television news having worked in it, and I've still got friends in it that I, that I love. Um, I, I do not think it's a good medium. I, I think that that is a medium that really ought to go out of business, uh, in terms of just being a, a useful, way to uh, communicate ideas. Uh, I'd say YouTube shows and podcasts are a lot better because the format that they're engaged in lends itself to conversation better. In cable television news in which I worked, the longest segment we had on our program was eight minutes, usually divided by by three hosts and, and at least one guest. Well, how are we going to take a complex issue like Ukraine or Iran or the national debt, something that is just complex and and boil it down to a minute and 45 seconds on average you can't what you end up getting is a bunch of hot people shouting bumper stickers at each other and uh youtube shows like what you're doing uh or, or, or podcasts excuse me for, forgive me because we can see each other i'm thinking youtube uh but podcasts uh, are a much more conversational medium you can actually let ideas breathe and uh if you didn't want to do that i i uh, I, I have no um no stake in this matter, but I think The Week is a fantastic publication for anybody that wants to be kept abreast of American uh, current events. They they do a, a great job of telling you what the stories were that happened in The Week and then taking snippets from uh, opinion pieces like The Wall Street Journal and The Nation and MSNBC. And, and they just they kind of give you these are what the, the talking heads all said about it. And it's a really good way to get a rundown of what's happening without getting sucked into that that emotionally evocative feedback loop. That's great. And I'll definitely resource that in the show notes because, yeah, I agree. It's finding, and I, I tell this people all the time, to do a ton of work uh, in burnout as far as helping organizations and individuals fight burnout. And one of the things I tell them to do is you need to have boundaries around how much news you are consuming. If you, because mm -hmm. the, the news stations, you know, they, they some start as early as three o'clock. You know, they start at like 5 a.m. in the morning, they go till noon or maybe one have an infomercial and then three o'clock they're the early early news and that goes right up to seven o'clock and hey there's pat and vanna and then you watch some game shows and some sitcoms and then you know 10 o'clock the news is back on or 11 yeah. and you look at you add all that up and you're like yeah and everybody's like why am i so stressed out why are you yeah. so stressed out all you're consuming is stressful information so i, yeah. I love you know i love that feature and you know the show that you have is is amazing as well because it's important to you know find that middle ground because i think that like you said i think that's where everybody is and we got to kind of muffle the noise and, and focus on what's important for us so andrew i've loved this conversation where can people find out more about you the amazing show and everything else you're doing hey come check out the political orphanage i, I have a show every single week um i uh, uh i'm not sure when this episode's going to drop but in the recent past i i made friends with a Latvian war correspondent who gave me a very good rundown of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia and why Russia's doing what it's doing, which was interesting to me. I think the week before that, I talked about the nature of ceremonial monarchy because the queen had just died. And the week before that, I did this deep dive on nuclear war that was almost like a 
funny Cormac McCarthy novels. So there's lots of different content, and I uh, would love for people to come check out The Political Orphanage. Maybe if you two are either exhausted or something of a political misfit, you might find your home. I'll definitely have all that information in the show notes. So, Andrew, thank you again for your time today. Really appreciate you and this all, all those amazing work you're doing. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.